Well, good morning, everyone. As we turn our attention to God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the great work of salvation that you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see today. Give us fresh eyes to see your grace. Lord, that you would work today through your word and by your spirit that we would be awed by what you have done, that you would strengthen our faith. Lord God, that we would live in light of it by your grace. Lord, we pray for your work because we know that that is the only way that the transformation that we so desperately need will happen. And so we ask that you would work today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as most of you know, uh, Sarah... Uh, and I have been blessed by God with five wonderful, beautiful children, one boy, and four girls. So having four girls, as you might imagine, uh, our house has an abundance of dolls. They love dolls. Uh, personally, I think they're kind of creepy. So they think it's fun to set the dolls up so that when I walk in the door, like it's <laughs> staring at me. It's great fun for them. Um, of course, this doll is not alive, right? Uh, this, this doll uh, can't talk, can't move, can't do anything. Now, I know that nowadays they try to make dolls as lifelike as possible. Sometimes they can say a few things or they can move around a little bit. But even then, the doll is not alive. It is lifeless. Now, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that somehow I had the ability to make this doll alive, like truly alive. First of all, that would be startling. That would be shocking. It'd be amazing. Of course, I don't have the power, so the doll is going to stay dead. Um, but if I could bring this doll to life, wouldn't it be strange if the doll boasted or bragged about that? Like, hey, look what I did. Right? That would be very, very strange, as if the doll had any part of it as if the doll created its own life. It's just as foolish for us to boast when God brings us from death to life. And we've seen in Ephesians 2 that we are dead or were dead in our trespasses and sins. That is, selves alive. God saves us. We do not save ourselves. It is entirely God's work and therefore, we have absolutely no right to boast. The whole of our salvation is by grace from beginning to end. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast in themselves. Rather, our only boast is in the Lord. Our only boast is in what Christ has done. That's what we're going to see in our text today. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10 today. Some of the most well-known, some of the most precious verses in the Bible, and I've been praying that as we look at them today, it would fill us with awe. 
that it would lead us to praise God for his grace. In fact, that's the message for us today. Boast in the glorious grace of God. Why were we saved by grace? So that no one may boast, verse 9, so that God gets all the glory, so that all of our boasting will be in the Lord. Now, our text is going to have two parts today, and both of those parts are going to lead us to boast in the grace of God. Part one shows that our salvation is totally God's work of grace, and part two shows us that our new life in Christ is also totally God's work of grace. And both lead us to boast then in the grace of God. So let's look at at this. First, your salvation is entirely by God's grace, not by works, so that all your boasting is in him. We see this in verses 8 and 9. I want you to look there with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Literally, this is not from you. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That last phrase tells us the purpose of salvation by grace is so that no one may boast. That is, boast in themselves. And why can't you boast? Because your salvation is not from you. It's not from your works. Instead, it's a gift of God. Your salvation is entirely from God, not from you, so that all your boasting is in Him. God saves us by grace to crush human boasting and maximize the praise of His glory. God saves us in this way to display the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness to us for all eternity. Verse 7. But in order to see how amazing grace really is, we have to see how bad things are without Christ. So again, we'll go back to verses 1 through 3, which describes the state of every person without Christ. The unbeliever is spiritually dead, walking in trespasses and sin. That is, they're doing what is wrong, trespasses, and failing to do what's right, sin. Man's problem is that we are spiritually dead cut off from God. We are sinful by nature and by practice. And as a result, we're under God's wrath, his just and deserved wrath. Man's condition is not only horrific, it's also hopeless. You know, we talk about grace as Christians, and sometimes I think that we hear it so much that it becomes boring. I think one of the reasons that grace is boring to us is because we fail to reckon with the seriousness of sin. We minimize it. To see how amazing grace is, we have to grasp the nature, the depth, the extent, the depravity, the consequences of our sin. And we have to realize our utter inability to save ourselves. By nature and by practice, unbelievers are spiritually dead and destined for wrath because of sin, and there is nothing they can do about it. But God, to the best words in the whole Bible, but God acts to save us because of his rich mercy and his great love. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Why does Paul suddenly insert, by grace you have been saved right here? It's because 
It's where grace is seen most clearly in bringing us from death when you can do nothing to life. That's where we see God's grace most clearly. God brings us to, from death to life displaying the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us. Why? Verse 8, for or because by grace you have been saved and this is not from you. The point of verses 8 and 9 is to make it absolutely clear that, in, that our salvation is entirely from God. Lazarus is probably the best biblical picture of God's grace in bringing a dead sinner to new life. You remember the story of, of, of Lazarus from John chapter 11. Jesus is away. Mary and Martha send to Jesus. They say, hey, our brother Lazarus is sick. We want you to come. Jesus delays. By the time Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has died and he's been in the tomb for four days. His body is already decaying. So when Jesus went to the tomb and he asked for the stone to be taken away, Martha says to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. John eleven thirty nine. That's a picture, a good picture of our spiritual state because of, our, because of sin. We're dead, rotten, stinking, hopeless. And when the stone was moved away, nobody went to Lazarus and encouraged him to come to Jesus. None of the people that were there went up to Lazarus and said, hey, Lazarus, get up. Jesus is here. All you need to do is reach out to him and he'll save you. He'll do the rest. Nobody said that to him because Lazarus is dead. He can't do anything. He can't even twitch a finger, let alone reach out for Jesus. That's our spiritual condition without Christ. We're spiritually dead, incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. Now, after praying, Jesus said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus responded, but did he respond because of his own effort? Was it from him? No. Jesus brought Lazarus to life, and the power of God enabled him to obey that call. He responded because Jesus gave him the breadth to live, and the ears to hear, and the strength to move, and the will to obey. Jesus did it all. Even his response was empowered by Jesus. This is a picture of what God is doing in saving us, in making us alive in Christ. The sinner is unable to do anything to cooperate with God. If he is to be saved, it will be completely an act of God by grace alone. Grace is totally one-sided. Now, if you need saving and you can't save yourself and Jesus comes and save you, you don't boast. You fall on your face at the feet of Jesus in gratitude and worship. You stand to your feet and you leap for joy because of what Jesus has done. You sing his praises. You tell everybody what he's done for you. But what you absolutely do not do is boast in yourself. Even before Jesus went to see Lazarus, he said this, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's exactly the same way with our salvation. 
your forgiveness, being delivered from slavery to sin, freedom from the wrath of God, being brought from death to life, being raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It is all by grace. It is not from you. It is not your own doing, so no one may boast. God saves by grace to crush human boasting and to maximize his glory. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from you. What is this referring to? This, the word this in Greek, it's neuter. But grace and faith are both feminine nouns. So that means it's not pointing back to either of them. Instead, it's pointing back to the whole thing, the entirety of your salvation. All of this being saved The grace of God saving you through faith, all of this is not from you. That includes your faith. All of it is a gift of God. Now, how do you receive this great salvation that Jesus accomplished? The answer is through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the perfect counterpart to grace because faith, by definition, is not looking to self. It is not trusting in self. It is trusting in another. It's trusting in someone else. It's trusting in Jesus Christ to save you. Faith says, I can't do it. God, you must save me. I'm trusting you to save me. Faith, then, is the exact opposite of works. Salvation is not something that we do. It is something that Christ has done. You see, the gospel is good news, and that's important because the Bible is not a book about what we have to do to earn salvation. It's a book about what God has done to save us. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to secure your salvation. Paul wants to be absolutely clear about this. He says, it's not from you. It is the gift of God. And then he adds in verse 9, it is not a result of works so that no one can boast. He's going to be absolutely clear. Our works have nothing to do with our salvation. We can't save ourselves. Now, I want you to imagine with me in your mind, people standing on a cliff overlooking a, a river, and this river is two miles wide. Can you imagine that with me? For a second. So as a kid, my, my family and I, we would go to this place in South Dakota called Pike Haven Resort. It sounds really fancy. It was really just a campground, more like a campground. And it's right on the Missouri River where the Cheyenne meets, uh, meets the Missouri. This is my dad with some of our fish. This is me. This is my brother. The kids saw this picture of me, and they're like, Dad, why are you wearing a skirt? Um, um, At that point in human history, big baggy shorts were like, cool. Um, Now it just looks like I'm wearing a skirt. Um, So you can see here, this is a map. It's so hard to give you guys a picture of what this is like, but down here uh, is Pike Haven Resort. This is the Missouri River as it comes around and uh, this is the Cheyenne that's feeding into it. If you look down here at the map key, you can see this is a mile. So I tried to measure it. This distance from Pike Haven Resort to the other side of the river is just over two miles. 
the water is so big. This place is wild. It's like uninhabited. Nobody lives there. It's like when you're there, you feel like you're the first person who's ever been there in the history of ever. It's super cool. As we used to go there as kids, so this is the picture, and this water is super wide. It's super deep. In places, it's like 100 feet deep or more. So get this picture in your mind. Here, here's a picture of, of the cliff on one side on Pike Haven, and then you can see the other shore in the distance. So this is, gives you maybe like more of a visual picture of the, the space. Now, let me ask you a question. Can anyone jump from one side to the other? I, I can't hear you. No, thank you very much. Not a trick question. You, you passed. Good job. I want to do a little object lesson. So I want to have some volunteers come up here. I want Layla and Isabel to come up and maybe Steve-O and Chia and Nick. Where's Nick? Is, he's in here. Nick, come up here. Um, how about you, Elijah? You want to come up here too? Okay, here's what I want you guys to do. This is what we're going to do. Um, it's you, you girls come right over here. You guys are so cute. Here, I was going to like use the laser to point at the floor. It doesn't, I don't need to do that. Um, I've got a blue tape line marked right here. And what I want you to do is just take turns. I want you to jump as far as you can. I've marked another blue tape line in the back of the room. Maybe, Jonathan, could you like stand up and just show where that tape line is so people can see it? It's right there. It's like right at his feet, basically. So what I want you to do, girls, do you want to go first, Isabel? And then, Layla, you can go after. If you want, you can take a running start. You can run as hard as you want. This is just jump as far as you can. And all I really want you to do is I want you guys to try as hard as you possibly can. Okay? You ready? Okay, go. Give it a shot. Run and jump. Not bad, not bad. Layla, do you want to give it a shot? Yeah. You run and jump as far as you yeah. can. Ready, go. Yeah, good job, good job. All right, Nick, go ahead. You did great, sweetie. Not bad, not bad. You can run. Girls, let, let's, let, they want to have like a running start maybe. Come over here. Whoa. Yes, impressive. Most impressive. Go ahead, Chia. This is where, this is where like Steve O's competitive nature comes out. And he's like, do I want to hurt myself in order to prove how strong I am? Oh! Excellent job. You guys can have a seat. Give them a round of applause. They did great. Excellent effort. Great job. So we saw the kids, they jumped a few feet, super cute. Uh, the adults a little further, the most athletic of them, right, further still. And I don't know where we landed, but somewhere, you know, I don't know, what is that, 15 feet maybe, something? Uh, maybe that's generous, I'm not sure. But the reality is, is that nobody came close to reaching the other line, did they? There are varying degrees of success, but only in comparison to each other. In relation to the goal, they're all equally failures. They all fall utterly short of the goal. And so it is with salvation. There might be degrees of goodness in, in human terms, but all people fall short of the glory of God. 
A person can do good works from a human perspective, being helpful, being kind, being considerate, being a hard worker at work, being faithful to your wife, and so on. The point is, is that none of those things have any merit with God. None of those things are done from faith or with the motive of glorifying God. Moreover, none of those things can change our nature and make us spiritually alive. None of them can remove God's wrath against our sin or reconcile us to God. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. I was thinking about this. Imagine you're on the side of the river and there's this huge prairie fire coming and you need to get to the other side of the river or you're going to die, right? You've got to get to the other side, but for whatever reason, you can't get to the other side. Maybe you don't know how to swim or the distance is too far, whatever it is, and someone comes with a boat and they say, I'll take you to the other side but you can't even get yourself in the boat. They got to get out of the boat. They get out of the boat. They pick you up. They put you in the boat. They take you across to the other side. When you get to the other side, you're safe. You're secure. You're saved, but you are not going to boast in yourself. You're going to be forever grateful to that person for saving your life. So it is with our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, never trusted him to save you, let me encourage you to do that today. Perhaps you've never thought about it. But today you see that you have sinned. You do what is wrong. You have failed to do what's right. You've heard about your condition, that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, that you're cut off from God, that you're without hope, that you're under his wrath. And you see, you see that you cannot save yourself. Come to Christ in faith. Trust in Jesus Christ to save you. That is why he came. You will not be saved by good deeds, by trying to tip the scales in your favor. That will not work. It doesn't change your nature. It doesn't reconcile you to God. Jesus is the only way to be saved. He died for you that you might be forgiven, that you might have his righteousness, that you might have his life forever. God offers salvation as a free gift. You receive that through faith, trusting in Jesus Christ to save you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is entirely God's work. That is why as Christians, brothers and sisters in the room, you, beloved, this is why you have assurance of salvation. Because it depends on God. Dear Christian, I want you to ask yourself this question. Will God ever fail? Will God ever fail to do what he says he is going to do? No. All who God the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus, John 6. And as Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me. This is the Father's will, Jesus said, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. John 6, 39. Let me ask you, does Jesus ever fail to do God's will? No, never. That means that For those who are in Christ, for Christians, your salvation is secure because it does not depend on you. It's not from you. It is not your work 
It is God's work. Rejoice. Why does God save by grace? God saves by grace to crush human boasting and maximize the praise of his glory. So boast in the glorious grace of God. Give him thanks and praise again and again and again. Worship him. Worship him. But worship him in the the broadest sense of the word. Living your life, your whole life, through him and for him. And that leads us to point two. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Yet even those are by God's grace so that all the glory goes to God. So part two then, second point, your new life in Christ is lived entirely by God's grace so that all your works glorify him. We see this in verse 10. I want you to look there with me. For we are his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we see here is that the same grace that saves us has another effect on us. In Christ, not only is wrath taken away, but God gives us a new nature. And this leads you to a new life of good works carried out by God's grace so that your boasting is in him. I want you to notice, notice how verse 10 once again starts with the word for, just like verse eight did. Starts with the word for or because, and what that means is, is that this is pointing back. This is giving the the ground or the basis for what comes before in verse nine. Namely, so that no one may boast. That phrase in verse 9, so that no one may boast, is supported by two grounds, two reasons. The first one that we've already seen, we're saved by grace. It's not from you. It's all God's work. So no one may boast. That's the first ground or reason. But there's a second one that Paul gives here. No one may boast for or because you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is really cool. When it says that we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, it's not talking about our being physically created, like being made in creation. Paul's talking about our being a new creation in Jesus Christ spiritually. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. We need to keep Ephesians 2.10 in its context. In verse 10, Paul is pointing back. You are spiritually dead, now you're spiritually alive. That's the context. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus in that sense. That means you weren't just made alive in Christ, you were made new in Christ. God doesn't just fix you up a bit. Jesus didn't come just to change the outside, change your behavior. God transforms us from the inside out. You're a new creation in Christ with a new nature. That means in Christ, we have new feelings, new desires, a new will. We make new choices leading to new actions. It is from your new nature that you live. 
Your new nature leads to a new way of life. That's what Paul is going to explain later on in this very letter in chapters 4 and 5. You are not the same as you were. You're different. So, I came across a story this week about St. Augustine that illustrates the point. St. Augustine was a great sinner before Christ, and he was uh, promiscuous before he became a Christian. And when he got saved, he realized that God had made him new. And as the story goes, he's walking through the streets, and there was a former female companion for hire, if you know what I mean, and she was uh, calling out to him, calling out to him. And first he tried to ignore her, kept walking, didn't look at her, but she kept calling his name, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And in response he said, I know, but it is not I. It is not I. And he ran from her. In other words, I'm not that guy anymore. I am not that man anymore. I am new in Christ. Do you understand that the circumstances might change, the temptation and the sin might change, but that is the experience of every genuine Christian. That is not who I am anymore. This is who I am now. Because Christ has made me new, I live a new way. God makes us new people, so we live a new way. We live for Him. Yet all of our works are motivated and accomplished by His grace. The good works that you and I do as Christians are the result of God's workmanship. We can't boast. That's the point of verse 10. It's God's workmanship. When God saves, He makes us a new creation in Christ, and the result is good works. Good works are the fruit of a changed life. They're the evidence that you've been made alive in Christ. The point is, is that it's all God's work. So there's no room for boasting. We see that it's God's work again and again in the scriptures. Let me show this to you. This is why Paul says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not only do the good works come from God, but even the will, the desire to do those good works comes from him. Philippians 2.13. Hebrews 13.21 says that God equips you with everything that we need to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight. Ezekiel 36.27 and 28. Speaking of the new covenant, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll put, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, that you will do good works. God makes us new and he gives us a new nature and the spirit causes us to walk in good works. Paul prays for the Christians in Thessalonica. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. God is the one who gives you the desire to do good. God is the one who fulfills that resolve for good. God is the one who fulfills your works of faith. And since every work of faith is done by his power, all the glory goes to Jesus. It's all by the grace of God. Why? So that no one may boast in themselves so that all boasting goes to Jesus. 
Okay, one more verse. This one's a promise. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Can you say it with me yet, church? For God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's all his grace because it's all for his glory. Paul says we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, but for a life of good works. They're good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beforehand, before the world was created. We've already seen in Ephesians that God chose you before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. God empowers, he not only prepares, but he empowers these good works as we've just seen. So I think John Piper has it right when he says this. I don't have the quote on the screen, so just listen. Quote, when we realize that when we walk in good works, when we do the right thing, something loving or kind, this verse tells us God planned that, God created that, God worked that, it is God's fruit and God gets the glory. This was prepared for me and this is not ultimately of me, this is of God. End quote. So what kind of good works did God prepare for you? Everyday works of obedience. And that's maybe not what we think of first when we read Ephesians 2.10, but it should be. The ordinary daily obedience, living, holy, and blameless. That is where Paul is going to go with this in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. So for example, patience and kindness rather than anger are good works. Contentment rather than covetousness and greed is a good work. Honesty, speaking the truth with one another, is a good work. Encouraging words that build others up, not corrupting talk. No filthy or foolish or crude joking. Forgiveness, these are good works. And they're not just outward actions. They're connected to our hearts, our new nature. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your language is foul, your heart is foul. The good works that God has for you to walk in can be summarized in a word, walk in love, Ephesians 5.2. Of course, that means serving others, loving your neighbor, sharing the gospel, making disciples, feeding the poor, caring for orphan and widows, and really the list goes on forever because love is the fulfilling of the law. Is there any way, though, for us to sort of narrow it down? Yes, there's two ways. First, the good works are personal. Just as each one of us is a new creation, so God planned good works for each one of us to walk in by his grace. This isn't generic, it's specific. Works specifically for you to do. This means that your life has purpose and meaning. God, God himself has work for you to do. Designed just for you. Man, don't ever think my life doesn't have purpose or meaning. It's the greatest purpose and meaning ever. The God of the universe has designs on you and for you, for you to do good works. It's amazing. It's such a privilege to serve him. Now, there are a lot of examples of God calling 
specific people to specific tasks that he had prepared for them in the Bible. I'll just pick one, like Paul himself. In Galatians, Paul says this, God set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So God chose Paul before he was born. He saved him by grace. He revealed Christ to him, all for a purpose that he would preach Christ to the Gentiles. That's Paul's purpose. His point in Ephesians 2.10, though, is that God prepared good works for each one of us. And those things are connected to your role. That's what I mean by it's, it's personal. So your role as children, parents, friends, students, employees. Let me try to give a couple concrete examples so you can understand. Kids, one of the good works that God has for you to do is to honor and obey your parents. That's a good work for you. For you, good works includes helping with chores, dusting, taking out the trash, picking up your room, making your bed. Nothing glamorous, but good works that God has for you to do. If you're married, husbands, you are called to love, serve, and lead your wives sacrificially as Christ does the church. Your leadership, men, is not a self-serving leadership. It is a selfless leadership, self-giving leadership, just like Christ. You live with your wife in an understanding way. It means you speak to her in tones of gentleness and understanding. Wives, respecting your husbands is a good work. Parents, you have the great privilege of raising your children in the Lord. These are privileges, brothers and sisters. These are, these are not like, oh, this is a duty. Like, no, you get to do this. God has given you this good work for you to do. Dads, you have the responsibility of spiritual leadership in your home regularly teaching and leading your family in devotions. You young adults, God has work for you to do in the lives of your friends, encouraging them to follow Christ. Now, we could go down the line and discuss good works that are related to being a friend or an employee or an employer or a neighbor. The point is, is that God has prepared good works for you connected to your role and where he has placed you. Remember, it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's all by grace. The point of this is that we would rely on God to enable us to do these good works that he's planned for us. We could say this another way. God hasn't prepared these good works for you to walk in. He doesn't prepare these things and then say, good luck, you're on your own. That's not it at all. What he's prepared for you he empowers you to do. Of course, there are a ton of ministry opportunities outside of your homes. We're called to share the gospel and make disciples and help the poor and give our time and resources, but I want to point out a second principle. It's this principle of proximity. As we think about good works, there's a priority given to those who are near to us. So the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, which includes all people everywhere, but there is also in the Bible a priority to those who are near, those who are in your community, those who are across the street. You live where you live with the neighbors across the street from you for a reason. I want to encourage you, 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 each one of you were born here and now. You live in this time and this place for a purpose. God put you here for good works to walk in with your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors, and so on. Now, I want to stop here for a minute and just mention, if you're sitting here thinking right now in your mind, am I doing enough? Have I done enough? You've missed it. You've missed the message. 
It is God's grace that saves and God's grace that transforms you. I want to reiterate, this is not from you. It is God's grace from first to last. That includes your good works. You see, God is in the process of sanctifying you. He's given you this new nature, and he is currently in the process of helping you live according to your new nature, not your old nature. And it's his work in you and through you. This is a process. Another way to say this is being made new doesn't mean that you're made perfect immediately. We're walking in a new direction, but we still stumble. We sin. When you do, you ask God's forgiveness and grace to be faithful. Paul began this section of Scripture by describing how we walked without Christ, and he ends with how we walk now. We used to walk in trespasses and sins. Now we walk in righteousness. We used to walk like the world, following the devil into disobedience. Now we follow Christ. We walk in obedience and new life. In Christ, we have both a new direction and a new destination. And all of that is God's grace for God's glory. So I want you to think of it this way. Just like God does everything that is necessary for your salvation, God does everything that is necessary for you to live faithfully. Your new life in Christ is lived entirely by God's grace so that all your works glorify Him. I want to close with with a summary of what we've seen of God's grace in Ephesians, in the book so far. And I'm going to summarize this just briefly. We were chosen and adopted as sons by grace alone. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. We are forgiven of our sins and saved from God's wrath by grace alone. Ephesians 1, 7 and 2, 7. We were brought from death to life by grace alone, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 9. Our entire living of the Christian life is a result of God's grace alone, Ephesians 2, 10. God's electing work, God's atoning work, God's regenerating work, God's sanctifying work is all by grace alone. Why? so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ, and so that no one may boast in themselves. The whole thing is designed to crush all human boasting and to maximize the praise of his glory. The praise of his glorious grace. So praise him. Praise him. Boast in what Christ has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to, oh, we want to shout it from the rooftops. We want to sing about it. We want to tell people about it, Lord. But we, we just want to say thank you and praise you for lavishing your grace on us, pouring it out upon us, the immeasurable riches of your grace. Thank you for bringing us from death to life, delivering us from wrath, saving us from first to last. God, would you just help us to behold your grace and to boast in your grace and to live by your grace, all for your glory. God, do that work in us in Jesus' name, amen.